Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 11. Last week, I covered the mentions of Egypt in the Old Testament, attempting to lay the groundwork of how the history of the region is intertwined with the first part of the Bible. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning a summary of the history of the region itself, as known from sources external from the Bible. And more specifically, in this episode, I'm covering the prehistory through the end of the Middle Kingdom, with a few interesting side trips along the way. So let's get started. There has been a presence of civilization in the geographic area of Egypt well before the invention or discovery, depending on your point of view, of writing. And, by definition, this means that it has had at least a semblance of civilization since the prehistoric era. In the time that has elapsed since the prehistory, as I will explore in the next several episodes, the rulers, language, religion, borders, and even the climate has been constantly evolving for the thousands of years man has lived in the region. And, come to think of it, this is true for every place I've covered so far. So, no real surprise here. There have been times when the region had no real impact on the area surrounding it, but those times have been the exception. Instead, the Empire has, at various periods, controlled an area as vast as the countries we currently refer to as Sudan, Cyprus, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Turkey, and of course Israel. And, even when it wasn't a separate kingdom, it was part of other vast empires including the Persian, Greek, Assyrian, Nubian, Roman, Ottoman, British, among many others. As I'll cover in a minute, and now that I mention it, I also touched on this in the last episode, so much is known about the ancient Egyptians that it's a challenge to sift it down to several episodes. But there is something that's not as known. Well, to this day, not really known at all. And that is when man first arrived on the scene. Such is the problem with not writing things down, aka prehistory. So, before starting the prehistory, first a little general background as to why man settled in the area so long ago, and the people developed into such a great power so quickly. As with most things ancient, sustaining power can be linked to a readily available and also reliable food supply. After all, we see this reliability alluded to in the text of the Old Testament. Famines occurred in Canaan during the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in all of these cases, Genesis tells us that food remained available in Egypt. But why? It was mostly due to the great river found there, the Nile, and its reliable annual flood. A flood that not only brought more water to an otherwise parched plain, but also fresh, nutrient-rich silt. More on the actual level of parchedness in a minute. With reliable water and rich soil, growing grain, fruit, and vegetables, both for the consumption by humans and their livestock, led to reliable prosperity. The flooding typically occurred between June and August, in what would turn out to be the hottest months of the year. Any part-time gardener worth his salt knows that rich soil is typically black in color. The early inhabitants of the region took note of this too. In fact, a well-used alternate name for ancient Egypt was Kemet, 
which literally translates to the phrase black land. The black fertile soil that is left behind after the receding of the Nile in August of every year, even 4,000 years ago. Well, not in the last 50 or so years, since the construction of the Aswan High Dam. But I'm well, well ahead of myself. Back to the prehistory. According to evolutionists, the earliest exodus of what they would refer to as hominids from Central Africa occurred about two million years ago. They also propose that what we would recognize as being somewhat similar to modern humans made the same trek perhaps 100,000 years ago. And if you look at a map and assume these early people had no boats, then you know that the only path from the African continent to the rest of Europe and Asia was through Egypt, and then across the Sinai Peninsula. The push of migration always leaves a trail of settlements, and in this case, these were surely planted in the rich soil of the Nile floodplain. Hunter-gatherers learned to become agrarian and voila, the earliest Egyptian societies. Of course, the Bible tells us that Noah built an ark, and he and his three sons and a few other family members rode out the storm that destroyed the rest of humanity. One of these sons was Ham, who himself had several sons, one of which was Egypt, a man who would become the forefather to the Egyptians. Either way, someone first settled in the region and from him, and of course from an unnamed woman, a great civilization grew. Archaeologists believe that the agriculturally centered villages, with their people, you know, their village people, first appeared in the area around 7,000 years ago and existed in a period of prehistory for about two millennia. As such, the first inscriptions, at least the oldest found to date, are thought to have been created around 3200 BC. These inscriptions prove to be consistent with the earliest from other neighboring areas, and their primary topic of discussion are the leaders of the time which, given what I normally see in our modern headlines, this trend has held true for some half a, oh wait, there's no word in English for 10,000 years, one equivalent to the use of the word millennium for 1,000 years. I'll ponder that one for a while and maybe invent something. Anyway, here we are some five millennia later, and we still prescribe much of our popular writing to our leaders. In the case of the Egyptians, the early rulers included a presumed fellow named Irihor. You will sometimes see him referred to by the name Ro. I'll cover him more in depth in a few episodes. But for now, know that he is alleged to have founded the city of Memphis. And no, not the one on the mighty river that is the home to great barbecue and blues, but the one on the Nile in northern Egypt. That city would serve as the capital for a large part of the empire's history. During this prehistory, keep in mind that Egypt was not one unified land, but instead several different kingdoms spread out over the length of the Nile Plain. When it finally united, or at least coalesced, is still debated among academics. It is commonly believed that the climate in this prehistoric era was wetter than what is found in the same area today. Where does this theory come from? 
Well, evidence of agriculture has been uncovered in areas that are principally desert today. Essentially, what are now barren sand dunes was formerly fertile. And when you hear of Moses leaving and tending sheep, you can't do that with much success in a desert. Such a climate would be far too hot and arid for an animal that is constantly growing its own wool coat. By way of example, an archaeological site that has become known as the Cave of Swimmers is located on the Gilf Kabir Plateau. Geographically, this is in what is today southwestern Egypt, right on the border with the nation of Libya. In our modern climate, the cave is bordered, on all sides, by a seemingly endless desolate desert. But located in the cave on its walls is artwork that seems to show what some researchers claim are people swimming. The closest bodies of water, well at least today, are some 124 miles or 200 kilometers away. Of course, other researchers draw other conclusions regarding the art. But one item remains undisputed, and that is the area today is completely inhospitable to habitation, and therefore it would be natural to assume that the people who created the art, maybe over 10,000 years ago, would have benefited from a different climate. Which brings me to the next bit about the climate so long ago. While exploring the prehistory of Mesopotamia, I talked through what has become known as the Holocene Climate Optimum Event. This is thought to have occurred between 7000 and 3000 BC. As a refresher, in the Northern Hemisphere, which is where all of the places covered by this podcast thus far are located, during the event, the average temperature increased to various degrees by various degrees. The increase at the North Pole has been proposed as around 7 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 4 degrees Celsius. Northwestern Europe also warmed, while Southern Europe cooled. Essentially, summers in the Northern Hemisphere were warmer, but the same seasons in the tropics and Southern Hemisphere were cooler. So, what happened in Egypt? Well, the climate was more tolerable, meaning more moderate, and more importantly, wetter. And a moderate, wetter climate leads to more vegetation, more animals, and a more hospitable environment for early man. Also, and slightly overlapping, there is what is known as the African Humid Period. This event has been proposed as occurring between 14,000 and 4,000 BC, which places it while Egypt was being settled, regardless of the settlement theory you subscribe to. During this humid period, the African continent, and especially its northern portion, was much wetter. This was due to the strengthening of the African monsoon, probably caused by changes in solar radiation, with radiation simply meaning the amount and strength of sunlight. The changes in solar radiation may have resulted from long-term variations in the Earth's orbit around the Sun. It was during this period that what we know of today as the Sahara Desert was much greener, and obviously greener means more vegetation, and vegetation requires water. Now to be clear, don't envision a rainforest but certainly more flora and fauna than can be found in the region today. It's thought that what is currently desert contain many lakes, 
lakes that may have supported wildlife such as crocodiles and hippos. Now crocs are carnivores, so other smaller animals would have had to be present. And hippos are herbivores that, given their size, require large water supplies and a vast quantity of vegetation. In the Sahara, layers of marine sediments have been uncovered which, of course, indicate that at some point in the past there was marine life. And the boundary layers within the sediment seem to indicate that the transition from wet to dry was relatively quick, perhaps even as short as a decade or two. Obviously, a cataclysmic climate event could cause such a rapid change. Some would say meteor, a dramatic shift in solar radiation, etc. Others would say a flood. And some researchers even point the finger at humans, theorizing that the introduction of domesticated animals, of course tamed by early man, could be the cause. Well, I certainly wasn't there, so I cannot personally provide eyewitness testimony but I can do a little research. So humor me for a minute while I dive into a shallow rabbit hole. The Sahara Desert, at its present extent, covers about 3.6 million square miles, or about 9.2 million square kilometers. To put that in context, that is about the same size as the entire United States, including the huge state of Alaska. And, in the U.S., at least according to the Department of Agriculture, in 2015, there were close to 100 million head of cattle. The only estimation of world population I can find for 10,000 B.C. was that there were about 4 million people living then. It would take another 2,000 or so years to increase to 5 million. Either way, the entire globe had, let's estimate high, 5 million people. And knowing these few numbers, I'll choose to not believe that the domestication of livestock led to the creation of the Sahara Desert. After all, even if all 5 million people thought to be in the world at the time lived in the region, and each person owned roughly 20 cows, the livestock would not be capable of eating the land dry. It just doesn't add up. But you can draw your own conclusions stepping out of the rabbit hole and back to Egypt. Of course, after a prehistoric period comes a historic period, and the events, given that they were recorded, become less murky. The best way to understand the history of Egypt is through its many dynasties. Some researchers number these at 30, others at 31, but the actual count is unimportant, especially for our purposes. The dynasties are then grouped together to form periods. There are roughly eight periods, but the count of these also varies by how the dynasties are grouped and when a researcher starts and stops the clock. Before I get you too lost in the mix, let's just work through it at a high level. For now, the various dynasties and periods. Also, keep in mind the manner in which the interpretation of Egyptian history occurred especially in the Western world. In the 3rd century BC, an Egyptian priest known as Manetho recorded what is believed to be an accurate account of the history of the area up through that time. Manetho is believed to have authored a work titled History of Egypt, and did so because Ptolemy II Philadelphus asked him to write the history. 
Now, don't worry too much, for now, about Ptolemy II. Just know that he was essentially the ruler of Egypt at the time, and was basically Greek, a remnant of Alexander the Great's conquest. He'll get covered later. Anyway, Manetho recorded the history of Egypt in Greek, even though it's believed he was a native speaker of the Egyptian language. And his language roots were important, as the ancient hieroglyphs, while readily available, were largely uninterpretable. Okay, they were not readily understandable to people from the Western world, at least as far as we know, until the discovery of the Rosetta Stone in 1799 AD. Now, to be clear, the Rosetta Stone dates to about 200 BC and records a decree in three languages, Ancient Egyptian via hieroglyphs, Demotic, and Greek. So, it's commonly believed that some Greeks may have understood Egyptian, which would make sense, but somewhere along the way, that understanding was lost. So, all the Western world had, for thousands of years, that recorded the history of the dynasties was the work of Manetho. Fortunately, his work was rather exhaustive. The book, well really it was three volumes, was organized chronologically, and he was the first, as far as we know, to group the rulers into so-called dynasties. Now, keep in mind that these dynasties were not exactly how we think of them. We tend to use the word to refer to rulers related by blood, so all in the same family. He took a different tact and grouped them together by common events, or some other sort of commonality, such as ruling from the same city. But they did not have to be relatives. Now, some believe that Manetho did not really exist, and the histories were the work of several writers. But no matter who wrote them or how, they were the starting point of the Western understanding of ancient Egypt. Unfortunately, the work does not exist today. Which, of course, begs the question, how do we even know about it? Well, his ancient accounts of ancient Egyptian history were preserved by similarly ancient Greek writers. So, we don't have a first account of the history, but a record of a record. Which isn't pedantically exactly correct either. Without the original, we're not even sure if his account cited direct references. So we're kind of stuck. But it was the starting point. Which brings us to our modern understanding of Egyptian history. With the aid of Manetho's work, as recorded by Greek writers, as well as our present understanding of the hieroglyphs, modern scholars take his dynasties and group them into several periods. So, let's work through them. The first two dynasties are commonly dated to about 3000 BC and are typically grouped together into what is known as either the Early Dynastic or the Archaic period. The first known pharaoh ever, so that would place him in the first dynasty, was a ruler named Menes. Sometimes you will see him referred to as Narmer, his Greek name. He ruled around and using the word around rather loosely, 3000 BC. Ancient writers thought he was the first pharaoh of a united Egypt, but modern researchers have concluded that there was a group of Egyptian rulers that preceded him, 
Scholars sometimes refer to these pre-Menes rulers as being part of a dynasty zero. Remember when I said it was hard to keep track of the number of dynasties and groups? Well, this is one of the many reasons why. Have you ever written a paper and saved it on your computer as the final version? Yeah, don't do that. You're just inviting revisions. The same goes with saying someone was the first, especially true in the era of prehistory when nothing was recorded. You're going to end up with a dynasty zero, or maybe even a negative number. Anyway. Next, dynasties three through six reign from about 2650 to 2150 BC. When these are grouped together, they form the Old Kingdom. It was during these dynasties that many of the pyramids were believed to have been built, including those at Giza, which includes the Great Pyramid. But then, the Old Kingdom collapsed. The cause of the downfall of the Old Kingdom is a hotly debated topic among scholars, and current research suggests an extended drought. Think back to a few minutes ago when I recounted the famines that caused the patriarchs to migrate. Famines, droughts, shifting weather, and the like have long been drivers of shifting political power balances. In fact, outside of the Old Testament and during this era, other cities and civilizations in the Middle East also collapsed with evidence at archaeological sites indicating that a period of drought impacted these civilizations, as well as the Egyptians. Next were dynasties 7 through 10, well, actually through the first part of the 11th dynasty. This time period is known as the First Intermediate Period and was from about 2150 to 2030 BC. During this time, the central government in Egypt held limited power and consequently the region was frequently controlled by different regional leaders. The latter part of the 11th, along with the 12th and 13th dynasties, are referred to as the Middle Kingdom. These dynasties occurred between about 2030 and 1640 BC. The first ruler of the kingdom was a pharaoh known as Mentuhotep II who reigned from about 2030 to about 2000 BC. During his 30 or so years in power, he reunited the kingdom, which is why he gets a kingdom and not an intermediate period. During the Middle Kingdom, the building of the pyramids resumed, and just as importantly, literary and scientific texts were accumulated. One such text, found written on papyrus, is known as the Edwin Smith Papyrus, which sounds remarkably English. Close. Well, Edwin Smith was an American Egyptologist who purchased the document from an Egyptian dealer who seemed to not recognize its importance. It may have been a manual of military surgery, as on it are the descriptions of 48 cases of injuries, fractures, wounds, dislocations, and tumors. Each case details the type of injury how to examine the patient, a potential diagnosis and prognosis, and of course, the treatment. Included are treatments for closing wounds with sutures, specifically on the lip, throat, and shoulder. Also bandaging, splints, preventing and the curing of infections with honey, and the stopping of bleeding with raw meat. It recommends immobilization for head and spinal cord injuries as well as lower body fractures, 
the papyrus describes realistic anatomical, physiological, and pathological observations. It contains the first known descriptions of the cranial structures, the meninges, the external surface of the brain, the cerebrospinal fluid, and the intracranial pulsations of any document found thus far anywhere in the world. Also, it is on the papyrus that the word brain appears for the first time in any language. The influence of brain injuries on parts of the body is recognized, such as paralysis. The relationship between the location of a cranial injury and the site of the body affected is also recorded. While crushing injuries of vertebrae were noted to impair motor and sensory functions, Due to its practical nature and the types of trauma investigated, it is believed that the papyrus served as a textbook for the trauma that resulted during military confrontations. And what makes it exceedingly remarkable is that the procedures of this papyrus demonstrated an Egyptian level of knowledge of medical practices that surpassed that of Hippocrates, who lived 1,000 years after its writing. Moving along. Of course, the Middle Kingdom did not reign forever, otherwise it wouldn't be titled Middle. After this kingdom was another intermediate period. But I'm bumping up against my self-imposed episode time limit. In order to not rush through the remaining dynasties and periods, I'll end this episode here and pick up next week with what happened after the Middle Kingdom. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Like I've asked you many, many times before, this week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss any. Thanks for listening and have a great week.